Hello, LinkedIn friends and everyone listening on the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Unconventional Career Coach Podcast. My name is Marcia, and today I have Brandon Jones with me. I am so excited to have you, Brandon. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I am uh, on campus for today's interview. So if you hear echoing, it's because I'm in these tall halls and these tall walls. But I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think this is an important topic that doesn't often get talked about, but I think a lot of people either internalize it or feel it. So I'm excited to get going. Amazing. Amazing. Yes, this the topic that we're talking about today has gotten a lot of um commotion in my DMs yeah. on LinkedIn, which I'm really, really happy with. I see that this is a topic that resonates because today we're talking about how ancestral trauma or historical trauma affects Black people's career co uh, choices. Yes. And this topic came to mind for me as I was diving into the topic of ancestral trauma. Mm -hmm. Um I started looking into this a couple of months ago and actually did a podcast episode introducing ancestral trauma to start um, looking into how this might affect our career choices. And as I was doing research on this topic, um, side note, I'm a European in America. So I was thinking like, how does this work in America? And I thought about the history, the slavery history in America. So I started Googling and I found one of your presentations, Brandon. Right. I remember this this presentation slide deck, you know, you go on Google and you find some presentation from someone and I was like this man knows what he's talking about. You shared you shared exactly some of the questions that I had and you answered them uh, on how the black community in America is affected by this shared history. Even the the teenagers that are getting ready to go into high school, getting ready to choose a degree, like how they are affected by this shared history. So I immediately reached out to you. Um, I hadn't even done the podcast episode introducing ancestral trauma. It's episode four. If you're listening, you can find it. Um, but the moment that I saw your presentation, I knew I had to get you in a separate specific episode. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm really glad that you're here and I would love for you to introduce you to everyone who doesn't know you maybe sure. or who has seen you and wants to know more about you. Absolutely. Thank you for that. It's funny how we get connected and how, you know, our careers cross and content and information crosses. But it, I look, again, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Again, I'm Brandon Jones, born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I When I used to have conversations and talks across the nation, I used to get a question like there's black people in Minnesota, but I think unfortunately after the death of George Floyd, people realize that we do have a black population here that's beyond our athletic sports team. So I'm a proud third generation black Minnesotan. My children are fourth generation black Minnesotans. And that's that's that goes into our conversation of how people get to place how African American folks have got to places like Minnesota, usually it's for economic and career opportunities, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. Uh, but my origin story starts off unfortunate, like a lot of folks who look like me with trauma and drama. I seen a lot of domestic violence as a kid, um, you know, one times more than enough. And I grew up in a household that, you know, for the most part, we were, uh, you know, in poverty. I grew up with WIC, food stamps, Section 8, Lelway, things of that nature to survive. And my life took an interesting turn when uh, a few weeks before my 12th birthday, my grandma let out a family secret that she wasn't supposed to share with me. And she told me who my real father was. I thought that the person who was in my life was my father, but he was really my stepdad. And he was the father of my two younger brothers. So I grew up the oldest of three boys. I have two younger brothers. And she let out the family secret. And she also set up a meeting with my actual biological father on my birthday, which is July 4th. So, you know, it's a big holiday. I go meet my I go to meet my my actual biological father. He shows up late and he's also intoxicated. And um, at that moment, I had this epiphany, like many young black males do, of who to trust, who not to trust, and who you are as far as your identity. And I remember I told myself on my way back home that evening that I can't depend on any men. I can't specifically black men. And I carried that kind of mentality with me all the way up until my mid-20s. And I bring that up because that has all informed how I become the professional that I am today. 
um, you know, going through growing up with that kind of twisted mentality with some of the trauma that I experienced. Um, I let out a lot of my aggression on the football field. So I was a football player, which was an appropriate place to do it because people didn't know why Brandon was so aggressive or why, but they just thought, oh, he has some you know, athletic talent. He's an athlete, not understanding the mental health and things that I was dealing with and struggling with at the time either. Um, so I was also a nerd, though. I was really a nerd who, who could play football really good. That's really what, what it was because I love documentary films. Uh, even though I wasn't the best reader, I would try my best to read history books and things of that nature because I always loved learning. And those two things helped me get to college. I ended up going to the University of Minnesota. I originally went to school to be a dentist because my barber told me, you're smart. Dentists make a lot of money. You should be a dentist. And that's and I trusted my barber. And that's what I, that's what I said. All right. That's what I'm going to major in, <laughs> pre-dentistry. And, and I was smart. I was smart. In, I know math and science in high school wasn't bad for me. And um, when I got to the University of Minnesota, it was an eye-opening experience. I was a first-generation college student. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I learned very quickly that I could not keep the same study habits that I had in high school and college. And I got put on academic probation because I was struggling really bad. Um, I ended up switching. My, I was passing one class, barely passing it, though. I had like a C plus, maybe a B minus. It was called People and Problems. It was a sociology class. I had no idea what sociology was. I just knew a bunch of people with a bunch of problems, and it all made sense. Uh, so I switched my major from pre-dentistry to sociology and never looked back. Uh, end up working with a lot of different people. And for folks who are not familiar with sociology, that's the look. That's when you're looking at pretty much human dynamics, uh, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, those things. And um, I end up working with a lot of different community organizations and ultimately landed a job in the psych department. Uh, so that was my introduction to mental health. And Another epiphany happened. I realized a lot of the people that were coming through the psych unit were people with behaviors that I've been seeing my whole life, <laughs> whether that was in community and my family, uh, just randomly, you know, going on the, you know, the Mall of America or downtown St. Paul or Minneapolis. I seen people with similar behaviors, but no one ever told me this was mental health that people were struggling with. They just said, stay away from that person. Something happened to them. Something's wrong with them. And this kind of left it like that. So it made a lot of sense to me when I started to connect these dots. And then that's when I decided, oh, this is what I need to do. I need to become a mental health therapist so I can go back and help the people in my community. And that's not an unusual mindset for many African-American folks is to go to school, get a good job and learn something that you can bring back to the community to help the community. So that's what I decided to do. I'm going to become a therapist and I'm going to help rebuild men first and then rebuild families through therapeutic work. So I applied to grad school, um, like, again, not knowing a lot, I applied to grad school, got a master's degree in something called community psychology, thought I could become a therapist with that and realized about halfway through that program that doesn't help you with this thing called licensure. So I ended up uh, sticking in that program, graduated, went right back to grad school and got a master's in psychotherapy with the emphasis on marriage and family therapy from a school called Adler Graduate School. And that did prepare me for licensure to do the work in the community. Um, and... I was off to the races. I was on the way to uh, saving the community, put my cape on. I'm going to save the community through mental health. And unfortunately, I got burnt out. I got burnt out. Being a black male therapist is like being a unicorn. Um, they, they, we barely exist. And when people find you, they hang on tight. They don't let you go because they feel like you have some magic that you're going to sprinkle <laughs> sprinkle and change everything. And I, and I believe that. And, and I did do a lot of great and quote unquote magical therapeutic work with many families, many people. But I realized that I did not have the support that I needed to keep moving forward. And I got burnt out. Uh, I was probably I was about four years into the career before I realized that this wasn't going to work for me long term. And I had to make an adjustment. Uh, I was fortunate enough to win a pretty prestigious uh, fellowship here in the Twin Cities or here in the state of Minnesota called Bush Fellowship, Bush Leadership Fellowship. Uh, and that opened me up more nationally to do work on various different initiatives um, programs and policy making around African-American boys. And I was fortunate enough to have that. And it gave me an opportunity to do more than just therapy with and still do therapeutic work within the African-American community. And ultimately that led me to doing management. Uh, and I ended up working for a federally qualified healthcare center here in the Twin Cities, uh, where I helped build programming for youth and families, uh, whether it was through housing, food insecurities, gun violence, uh, just uh, case management and just building capacity in men. I did all that for about five years. And then 
uh, transitioned out of there during the pandemic and became executive director of an organization called Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health. And now the focus is on helping, you know, parents and caregivers and young people address these issues of mental and emotional health so that we have better opportunities to have, you know, live better lives. And we do that right now. The organization does it mostly in Minnesota, but we really want to make sure we serve any and everyone who comes to us, no matter where they reach out from. So, um, again, my origin story starts with the stuff that I've dealt with in my own history, and it also leads into what I've done professionally as well. And a lot of it's been informed by trauma. I started off with that. A lot of people know me for the trainings, like you found the training on trauma, uh, the trauma work that I've done. And most of the work has been on historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, and racial trauma, because I've always been trying to solve this question of what's going on with African-American people. Why do we have these unique uh, dispositions in so many different areas and spaces? And what is that about? And I met a man by the name of Sam Simmons who helped me answer that question when he shared with me what trauma was. Well, he introduced me to the concept of trauma. So, What an incredibly inspiring path to get here. And I know from the conversations we've had before we sat down here today that so many of the things that let you to where you are right now tie in with the things you shared that influence are influenced by historical trauma like the way your barber shared with you that yep. you should become a dentist yep. like that immediately rang a bell for me and we will dive into all these things uh in more depth i'm sure another thing that i noticed was the the community aspect like feeling like you have to come back to your community to serve there and um it's none of this is good or bad, mm -hmm. right? There's there's just this observation that I'm seeing now in your story because this is honestly the first time I'm hearing your whole story. Right. I'm like, oh, actually, some of the things we've talked about in the in the more generic sense mm -hmm. of the black community in America come like prime examples in your own story. Um, to start off, like, so we are all on the same page. Can you give us your definition or your description of what you mean when you talk about historical trauma, ancestral trauma? Absolutely. Great question. Uh, for me, historical trauma is a specific or a series of events that a cultural group uh, experiences. And then that cultural group adapts to that event whether we're talking about the Holocaust, chattel slavery, the potato famine, 9-11, um, Hurricane Katrina, like these things can be seen as historical traumas. And the, that collective of people, they adapt to the event and then they teach, this is the transmissions part, the intergenerational part. They teach that habits, they teach even the mindset sometimes, the ideals of surviving that specific event to the next generation and the next generation repeat, re repeats this on and on and on. This concept is called transmissions theory. So it gets to a point where a lot of times the, his, the, the group that was impacted by the history often doesn't even recognize where it comes from. It just becomes cultural. And that's where we see a lot of the things that have happened uh, within various different ethnic groups across the world is that when experiences take place, these groups adapt, they adjust, and they move forward. And sometimes they lose the concept of how they even got there in the first place. So that's how I would explain or even define historical and intergenerational or ancestral trauma. Very, very clear. Thank you for that. And it, it highlights the initial question that I had, because a lot of my clients are in their late 20s, 30s, and I see a lot of behavioral patterns mm -hmm. where it's kind of unclear where it's coming from. Right. And when we dig deeper, we can find some of these historical events or traumas that have happened that have affected their ancestors. And then it got passed down. And at this point in the line, in the lineage, it's un unclear where this came from, but right. it has become nature almost. It has become culture. Mm -hmm. It has become the habit. Um, so to talk about careers a little bit more specific on this topic, how do you see that chattel slavery and the history that America has with that? How is that affecting the young professionals today in America in their career choices? It's, it's very significant. And I think in today's society, we have a 
heightened awareness to how the effects of slavery have impacted African-American folks. I would, comparative to about 10 years ago, I would say we've, we have a huge learning uh, experience on that that we did not have 10 years ago. And people are now, and especially where the workplace is now, think about this. Currently, workspaces are forcing, not asking, they're forcing people to do things that we traditionally have not done in workspace. Talk about religion, talk about sex, talk about race, talk about money. And you're being, not, you're not even encouraged anymore. Like some places they're forcing you, like you're going to do the DEI training. You're going to talk to the consultant. You're, you're going to do the focus group. And that has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But what it's doing is it's creating a new workplace atmosphere. And with that, the awareness is now heightened. So people are starting to look at themselves and say, how have I been impacted historically? How have my group, my collective been impacted historically? And how is that informing how I show up and work on a day-to-day -day basis? Now, when you think about the African-American community, I would say most of us, our career choices have been impacted by this, and we didn't even know it. Um, you know, there's a couple of sayings that I'm going to share with you today during the podcast that the African-American community has utilized that have been informed by our historical trauma. For example, one of those things is, I said this earlier, but I'll say it again, is you go to school, you graduate, and you get a good job, and that's like the focus, like just go get a good job. And that really started in the 60s and 70s when we started to push our kids to just go to, the, get, go to get a college education and things are gonna be okay. But even before that, we would have things like the saying, like black folks are the first they're the last to get hired and the first to get fired. Like that's a, it, it, it sounds clever. It's a truth in kind of the way to say it as well. But that comes from unions. Um, when, 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 when American industry started to unionize, black folks were not allowed to be a part of those unions. And what we end up learning is when those unions were starting to get put in place and, and typically when people started to become white, we have to remember during those union times, folks were still, white folks who are now white were still classified as ethnicity. So you have Polish, Irish, you know, Norwegian folks, Italians, things of that nature. They weren't quite just white yet. But those unions, they kept out the Negro labor class, as they were called during the time. And black folks realized, oh, we are being let go. And then when globalization happened, it even happened even further where black folks lost their jobs first. And you start to see these massive amounts of black men unemployed uh, and these jobs going overseas. So we have these sayings and these concepts um, that we've been told over time that have impacted how we even approach our work. Another thing is we have to work twice as hard to get just as, just as half of what a white person does. Now, in some instances, that may be true, but I'll be honest with you, it, in my career, that has not been true. <laughs> even though I've worked hard and I've, and I've used my merit to get everything that I want, I've never had to work twice as hard as my colleagues. In, in fact, some of my colleagues probably haven't worked as twice as hard as me and have, <laughs> and have got just as much as what I've gotten. Um, throughout my own career as well. So, but we tell our kids this, we tell, we tell them this due to the historical trauma and due to the concept that in this world, you always have this adversity that you have to overcome just to have a basic life. And that creates a lot of stress. That creates a, what I think is a fragmented mentality towards your own abilities. And it can also create some discouragement as well, where you feel like you can never achieve what you want to achieve just to be you know, a dentist or just to be a lawyer or just to be a social worker or a teacher, like you're never going to be good enough because you're always going to be compared to what dominant society says and white, what white supremacy has identified as the white standard. And I think that that is a, a unhealthy mentality for black folks to have, but it's a very believable one due to our historical experience. Mm, absolutely. I want to pause before I ask you a question about this mm -hmm. further. If anyone has any questions who's listening live, feel free to drop them in the chat because we have time for questions today. Brandon, how are you seeing this, these sayings and these things that children have been told for years and years? How do you see this affecting young professionals, perhaps who are getting into their first real job after college, who are choosing a degree, maybe even? How do you see this affecting them uh, practically? Yeah, great question. I think, I think practically what I'm seeing, it's funny because I just hired... <laughs> a young black male. And I, and I, I want to use him kind of as a case study, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, so I'm thinking of him, but I'm also thinking of just some other folks that I've engaged with over time as well. But the awareness and the identity of black is so profound today. Like, like it's 
it's what we call in the community another saying unapologetic like people are showing up in spaces just being their authentic selves young people are thinking about how they wear their hair what messaging they're displaying um you know making sure that their clothing is is still within industry standard but still kind of identifies them so with some women you may see them lock their hair or wear specific earrings uh, for guys, they may instead of wearing your traditional dress shoes, they may wear some Jordans or some sneakers because they're adding culture into they're adding their own culture into the workspace that they're in. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that that's healthy as long as it's not inappropriate. Um, and what and who determines inappropriate depends on again the industry standards. So staying within the bounds of your industry, I think, makes a lot of sense. But I think that there's a, there's a level of that expression that should be uh, allowed and accepted and embraced for a lot of professionals. And I see them doing that and bringing in their own culture uh, into the workspaces. I think that it also has created a little bit of anxiety too, because sometimes especially with young professionals, they don't always know what they're walking into. So that level of anxiety is like, I have to, when I get into my workspace, I have to do a scan. I have to figure out, okay, who's cool? And what I mean by cool is like, who's okay with me just being me? And and you, you're probably doing that scan for like, if you're starting a new job, maybe your first 30 days on the job trying to assess, you know, who are the people that you can get along with? Who are the people that you avoid? Who are the people that are dangerous in the workplace? Like you're doing this scan just for you to feel comfortable. There's actually a concept, um, and I didn't create this. This was created by a man by the name of uh, Dr. William Smith at the University of, of uh, Utah State. And it's called racial battle fatigue. Whereas people of color, especially as African-American people, we go through this mental gymnastics of trying to avoid racism, whether that's through microaggressions or other things. We, we do things to, make sh to try to reduce the opportunity for racism to show up in our lives. And it, we might not be in a race, we might not be in an, a racist environment at all, but the potential that something <laughs> racist can happen still has us psychologically processing things. So we'll, we'll walk into a space or into a workplace and we might bring down a tone of our voice. We might change our voice inflection. We might, um, we might change the way that our clothing is. We might, you know, for women, you might leave work on Friday with your hair maybe pressed out and then you come back Monday and you have braids in your hair. And then you're thinking all weekend, okay, who's going to ask me questions? Who wants to touch my hair? Who's going to do this? And, and that, that, you know, that, level of anxiety and can almost turn into paranoia for some people and it's exhausting but it is a reality it's something that a lot of black professionals deal with um what are some other examples you know one one of the a, a classic joke in the african-american community it, for a lot of professionals is like you know when you're driving into your workspace you might be playing music it, you know it might be beyonce or it might be future or somebody like that but then you get to that workspace you turn that music down you might even turn the radio off because you don't want that judgment because you're enjoying something that may be hip hop or pop music that may have a hard beat to it or some bass. And that, that brings a level of stress to black professionals that is unnecessary because that doesn't happen. I don't think that that happens with other ethnicities as much as it does with uh, African-Americans, but I do know it does happen. So I have talked to other BIPOC folks and they'll say things like, you know, especially if they have an accent, like they try to, you know, change their accent. Sometimes they may even change their, you know, their, their first name just to make it easier for an American to produce to pronounce their first name. Um, you know, they may try to sharpen their English skills if English is one of the second or third languages that they have, you know, that they speak. So there's a lot of things that end up happening uh, for, you know, people of color when they go into workspaces that produces this level of anxiety that can be can be overwhelming for some people um, where they need to take mental health days and extended breaks and things just to survive in the environments of their workplace. Absolutely. It reminds me as well of the term personal uh, or self-abandonment. Right. It's almost like you come into the workplace, you abandon a part of yourself that perhaps you feel is not welcome or has been unconsciously uh, almost internalized that that is not welcome. Right. That if you would ask someone upfront if that is the case, like, are you abandoning a part of yourself mm -hmm. because you feel it's not welcome? They might say, oh, no, I'm not. But it is such a part of what has been taught and passed down with some of these sayings, with what parents have been teaching children, that it feels like 
the thing to do. And what I'm wondering is, does this also affect the the possibilities that um, Black folks in America see for their careers? Let's say uh, uh, an industry that's predominantly white, mm -hmm. or I know that uh, there is a lot less, and I wish I had a number here ready, investment in Black-owned businesses, yeah. like things like that. Do you see that there um, people are experiencing less opportunities or not going after those opportunities. Absolutely. I, I think, and, and again, some of this to me is due to our own experiences where we will see particular industries as a white industry and we won't go into it at all. We won't even explore it. Or maybe a few, like when I say a few, like you might meet one or two people that do that and you have no concept for it. So you just kind of downplay it instead of supporting that individual and what they do. But I see that a lot with African-American professionals. Um, we will avoid certain things. Like, like if I, if I ran into a black kayak instructor, <laughs> I would feel like that, that would be something like, wow, I didn't know that black people did this. I didn't know that we were kayak instructors. I didn't know, but I know that black people have gone kayaking. I've done it before. Right. So it's very, but we will, in our minds, we will, we will limit our own possibilities and even our opportunities to explore those things because we see them as non-black activities to do. So yes, so if you if you look at that concept, when black folks are choosing professions when they're in school, we will kind of we will limit ourselves to certain things. So we'll go into nursing, or you might want to go get an MBA. One of the more popular degrees right now for a lot of black folks is going to be a lawyer. A lot of black folks that I know are going to law school. Um, but we might not we might not want to do anesthesia or we might not want to uh, or even advance in certain careers as well. Like one of the things that I've I've also had some conversations with some colleagues about uh, is this explosion of diversity, equity, inclusion officer positions like they've just exploded over the last three years. And a lot of black folks have received these positions, but then they don't think about do they want to go beyond that? Do they want to try to become the COO or the CEO of the company? And a lot of those folks, they're just comfortable right there at that level. And I'm and and, and to me, I'm like, you know, at some point that particular job is supposed to get eliminated because you're going to do such a, you know, bang up job that it won't be needed anymore. Why not reach even further than that? But a lot of black folks, they won't do it. Uh, same things with being on boards of board of advisors positions and being board members as well. A lot of black folks, since we don't have people who talk to us about those experiences, we won't even try to be on those things. And we should. We need to have our voices in those spaces because those, a lot of times those are spaces that are making a lot of big determinations. But since we don't know a lot about it or it's not a common concept, we don't even attempt to do it. Uh, and I think that that I think that, you know, we do ourselves a, a ability. We do ourselves some harm there when we don't uh, open up the possibility and we don't become the first person to do X and it's okay to be the first, as long as that you, you know, you don't shut the door. So you're the last. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And a big part of that, of, you know, hearing about, Oh, it's there, there's a possibility for me to uh, head up the ladder, or there's a possibility for me to get into this different role or get this promotion mm -hmm. comes from networking. Right. And I know I remember mm -hmm. we talked about this topic as well, yes. that black folks are are less likely to network. Mm -hmm. Or can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And I think I think when it comes to career development, especially in 2023 and beyond, networking is one of the key skill sets to have. People don't think of networking as a skill set, but it is when you when you have the ability to make a connection and to meet other people and get exposure and access to different spaces, it's an artwork. It, it takes time. It takes dedication. It takes a little bit of vulnerability. Uh, you have to get uncomfortable sometimes and you have to go to events or, you know, show up on Zoom meetings and you don't know anybody. But those are going to be the key things to a lot of your advancement. Uh, even look at my own career. And I would not be in the position that I'm in today if it wasn't for building networks. Like a lot of people think I know a lot of people. I know on my LinkedIn, I have tons of people that I'm connected with. Some of them are here watching us today. Uh, so hello to all of you folks. And, and that's strategic. That's on purpose that I build those relationships, make those connections and those partnerships, because I want to make sure that no matter what work I'm doing, I always have something to fall back on or I always have opportunities that may be beyond what I see. And I know because of my peers that that's not something that they always have afforded to them because they haven't taken the time to develop those networks. Networks to, networks are investment. You have to be intentional. One of, the, one of the key ways that I've built my own network 
is by um, when people are asking me to do things, I find a way to do it and I'm consistent because now what I'm doing is building my credibility. People know that they can depend on me and then they will remember that I, I either did that favor or I showed up to do that speaking engagement or that panel or I showed up to their community event or maybe I donated you know some dollars to something. And now they remember, oh, Brandon is a trusted source. And then when they're talking to someone else, I come to mind and then they'll introduce me to their friends or people in their network. And it just kind of grows and builds from there. And unfortunately, I think due to our experience yet again, we shun away from sometimes networking because we don't want to be harmed. If we don't know anybody, there's a level of distrust and we don't want you know, somebody to you know give us a bad reputation or do something of harm to us. So we'll avoid going to some things or we'll get uncomfortable. Or just back to what I was talking about earlier, the racial battle fatigue shows up. So if I only know one person that may be a part of a group and I get invited to an event and I don't see that person there, now I'm the only, you know, I might be one of few black people in the building or in the space, that gets very uncomfortable. Because now I feel like the spotlight's on me, people may be judging me or talking about me, and now I want to get out of that situation, whether I leave or I don't stay very long or whatever the case may be. Where in the inverse, we really should try to connect with other people as much as we can and build our networks as big as we can make them. Mm-hmm. Beautiful examples as well from your your career. And I know in my career, networking has been huge in yep. helping me progress in both my corporate career and my business right now. And it is so eye-opening to to just pop these, these seeds into the ground. So anyone who's listening, just do hear this perspective and ask yourself the question, is this happening for me? Does this resonate with my experience or things that I might shy away from in my career in any way? And the answer might be no, the answer might be yes, but it's good to ponder on these questions. Um, And I want to touch on Keisha's question uh, Mm -hmm. in the comments because that ties in with that. She shared as your role as being an unconventional career coach, how does or with this topic direct or redirect your current mindset or approach when coaching people of color to be the best in their career path, knowing these adversities or rooted trauma traits? Now, it is my job as a coach to take people to the depths that they haven't gone yet. And I do that through questions, but I can only take them as far as I am aware of the depth. And that is why I am educating myself on a topic like this, talking to Brandon, um, learning about the effects of these kinds of things so that I can ask the questions that help people of color identify if perhaps ancestral trauma is affecting them. And maybe it is not, but I can now ask the right questions that help them see what is happening, what some of their patterns are that have slipped in through some things their parents might have said or a boss one time commented. or That is uh, how my approach has changed since I learned about uh, historical trauma. And that doesn't just tie to Black people. That ties to all kinds of different cultures. I work with people from all over the world. And mm-hmm. um, every single person has a history. And Trust me, every single person I talk to has some trauma in that history and that affects them uh, today. Can I add to the answer? Can I add to your answer a little bit? Yes. So your aunt, Keisha's question, shout out to Keisha. That's my cousin, actually. Shout out to Keisha. And um, your answer actually highlights something that I was talking about earlier. So as a coach, if I was, let's say I was a client of yours. I come in, I'm just a black guy. I work at a corporate corporation. I'm middle management. I see you, you just appear to be a white woman to me. I don't know anything about, you know, you not being American or anything. I just assume you're just a typical white woman. You know, you, you're going to approach me. We're going to work together. And you're only going to, you, like you said, you can only take the depths of what you know. But as a black man, I'm, I am scanning to see if you are, quote unquote, cool. Like if I can trust you enough to even go there. Because really, I'm going to be controlling a lot of what I'm going to tell you because I want to know how much you know, because I don't want to explain my cultural background to you. And I don't want to get down into some things that you might not understand because I don't feel comfortable going that far. So what ends up happening in that coaching dynamic is, one, as a coach, you might not be able to help that person to your best ability because they're reserved. And then as a client, I'm I'm not even getting my best bang for the buck because I don't want to be harmed by you, right? <laughs> so whether I'm paying for it or the company's paying for it, 
there's a miss here. There's not an opportunity because the rapport and the relationship hasn't been there due to historical trauma. I don't want to be hurt by what you don't know. And I don't want to hurt you by exposing something. I don't, you don't want to hurt. I don't want you to hurt me, sorry, by exposing something about my cultural group that you might not understand. And that level of fear and anxiety, I think so many people have. And it's it's a common thing that happens in coaching. And it's a common thing that happens in therapy as well. And, and, and this is why representation is one of those things that comes up for a lot of people. It's like, we need more Black coaches. We need more Black therapists. We need more Black teachers. Yes, we do. But we also have to deal with our own internalized you know, oppression and trauma so that we, no matter what coach we get in front of, we're able to get the best quality service and not let the racial difference hold us back. And I see that happening a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And it, it makes me think as well, like, it's just, in my mind, it is similar as to the um, inclusion and diversity officer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a black person who takes on that role just right. because they are a black person. It I don't have to only coach um, white people because I haven't experienced a historical trauma. It is my job to educate myself so that I can serve the people that I want to serve. And I want to serve people who don't necessarily look like a copy of me. Like that, I want to serve those people. So it's my job to educate myself so that I can be a coach for people of color and so that we, we need people in the in, uh, inclusion and diversity sector as well to be of all shapes and sizes and of all colors because it's not just the responsibility of the person who has experienced the trauma to Absolutely. then go ahead and solve it. And that's what I'm kind of seeing in this, uh, these roles that are popping up, right? What you were talking about, this explosion. Um, yep. It's not their role to solve it. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and then the reverse, because I, I do coaching as well. I have white clients and they don't have that level of resistance. We just get straight to whatever the issues are. We don't have to deal with that level of vulnerability. And I think that that's something that's important for us to keep in mind too, is like, that approach to coaching from a, a black client to a white coach or a therapist, like it, it, you're not going to get the experience that you should get due to that historical trauma there. So it's best to address it and deal with it uh, as best as you can so that you do get that coaching experience that you deserve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I see so many great comments popping in. Uh, first of all, I love that everyone is, is so engaged here. And right. uh, I feel like the topic is resonating a lot. Let me see. Danielle shared, what is a typical white woman? What is a typical black man? Only the strong-minded and those who see and have true focus in whatever their career path is succeed. Emotions aren't effective, nor is there room to relate culturally, most or even racially. What gets the job done? Any thoughts from you, Randon, on this comment? This particular yeah, one? I think it's a true comment, but it also depends on the industry. Because some industries are forcing folks to pay attention to the cultural differences and they're making that a part of getting the job done. So I don't know what I don't know what industry Danielle's in. It, it doesn't matter really what industry she's in. I think her st- and I'm assuming your gender pronouns, by the way, while I'm saying this, but I'm a, your statement reigns true, and I believe that that deep down. But given the current state that we're in in the workplace settings, culture is one of those things that we can't avoid and we do need to talk about. Um, and one of the ways to address this and have these conversations is by using what's called cultural intelligence, which we can get into later as well. Great. I would love to hear more about cultural intelligence. Tell me about this. All right. Just go for it now. All right. Perfect. <laughs> so, so cultural intelligence, it's not a concept that I created, um, but it's something I talk a lot about. And cultural intelligence is a concept that actually comes out of the business sector, and it came, and the first time I ran across it was a Harvard Business Review article that was talking about American business people going to do business in China. And originally they were having a lot of difficulties. Um, originally they were having a lot of difficulties in China doing business because they didn't understand the Chinese business customs. They came with their own American ideas and they were and they were learning very quickly. Our deals are not working because we are disrespecting these folks because we're not even practicing the the the, the business uh, approaches that they practice. So a few business scholars got together and they created this concept of cultural intelligence, which is just a way of functioning in environments uh, with or and with people that you're disfamiliar with. 
And it's kind of a framework that they set up. The first thing is you have to have first is a motivation. So what's your goal at working with these people or working in this environment that you're unfamiliar with? So that you, so once you know your goal, then you can figure out what information you need. So if I'm working with Chinese, let's say, let me just use a real example. Let's say I'm working with Somali young men. I'm not a Somali male. I'm just an African American male. There's some cultural crossovers, but there's a lot of difference in culture. So the first thing I need to do is I have to have a motivation. Well, they all go to the school that I work at. Uh, I have a group of, with young men, and they all register for that. So my goal is to be the best possible clinician therapist for these young men that I can be. Now, what do I need to do? The next step is I need data. I need information. So I need to learn a little bit about Somali young men. You know, are these first or second generation Somali young men? Maybe there's a blend. What are some of the issues that they're dealing with? You know, what are some, what are some of the ways that they entertain themselves? Uh, how do they relate in their families? Are there any uh, maybe birth order differences? Like these are, this is just general information that as a, from a therapeutic standpoint, I need to know about these particular group of young people because I need to be informed of how I'm going to operate with them. So once I get the data that I know, and I might have to, I might have to read some books or some articles, watch a documentary. I might want to talk to some elders, go to a community event, whatever I need to do to get that information. I need to get that information, but I don't want to put the pressure on the clients to tell me everything, right? Because they're one, they're underage. Two, um, that's not their role or their job. That's my job as a facilitator to help kind of get the information I need to be the best possible facilitator for them. Then the third step is to create a plan. So now that I know this information, I know what my goal or my motivation is. Now I got to create a plan. How am I going to engage with these young men? Uh, you know, what jokes are appropriate? What jokes are not appropriate? What, what are the connection pieces I need? And then finally, the last step is to put it in the application and to try it out. And then, you know, see what works, see what doesn't work and move forward from there. And, and I use this example because this, this is actually a real example that I've had. I've had like 13 young Somali boys that we did a group with and I couldn't approach them like I would approach a group of African-American boys entirely. Now, some of this stuff, you know, crosses over, but really I had to understand who they were as a collective group so I could support them the best. And then we had to build some rapport together and we had to see where our connection points were. I built their trust. And then I put my plan into action and boom, we were able to get through our lessons and have a nice successful group all together. So it's important for us to, to figure out how do we function around each other? That's what cultural intelligence is all about is the functionality. It's one thing to be culturally competent and have cultural humility and have our mindsets in that place. It's another thing to function in a way. And that's what cultural intelligence offers is a way to actually put those things into application. What a, what a beautiful practical description. Thank you so much. And mm -hmm. it made me think of um, something that was very new to me coming here as a Dutch woman. Um, I'm, I'm married to a man from South Carolina. And mm -hmm. uh, it's as a European, or maybe as me, I don't know, I, I saw black folks in America as Americans. Mm -hmm. I honestly didn't see that there was a cultural difference. Mm -hmm. um, because when I am at home in my home country, I see Dutch people, German people, Italian people, and they might have all different kinds of skin tones, but they are Italian or they are Greek and, or they're Moroccan. Uh, and there are Americans. People who live in America mm -hmm. are Americans. <laughs> in right. my brain, that was what was happening. So I come over here and I hear people talk about culture and like black culture. And I'm like, what do you mean black culture? Aren't they just all Americans? Aren't mm. we just all Americans? Not talking mm. for myself because I'm not. Right. But yep. uh, that what ancestral trauma taught me, like this topic, is that there are different ways kind of to uh, to support people that are part of a bigger group. So in my brain, part of Americans, uh, but have a completely different experience in right. the career realm than loads of other Americans. Um, mm -hmm. And that helped me personally to be more cult culturally aware because um, I would have just, you know, gone with the same approach. And now that I know that there is more to it uh, than just which country are you from? Because right. I work with people from 
from Russia, from India, from Belgium. People from India need to get used to my Dutch directness, for example. Mm -hmm. I know that. (laughs) So I know how to approach them differently. And now through this lens of historical trauma, I know how which depths I can take uh, black folks, white Mm -hmm. folks, uh, people who have had certain certain traumas in in Mm -hmm. their past or in their lineage um i want to close off with one question that is so important in this whole conversation because we've really highlighted some of the challenges up until now i want to focus uh the last 10 minutes on um ways that people can overcome these obstacles. So perhaps you are listening, perhaps you are recognizing a lot of these things. Maybe you have been familiar with them. Maybe it's a, it's an eye-opening moment where you realize, oh, this is actually something that uh, might be affecting the way that I approach my career. Now, what are some ways that those people can overcome some of those patterns or beliefs that they have inherited? Yeah. Well, kind of to go off what you what you just shared with us is first you have to realize that in the United States, we are very race focused. And that is not how the rest of the world operates. That doesn't mean that there's not racism. And it doesn't mean that there's not white supremacy all around the world. But we we filter our lives through race first, where other people around the world don't. So when you came to the US or even when you met your husband, and you start to learn these cultural dynamics, you probably were confused, like, well, why? why? But you're American, like, why would you do that? And a lot of Black folks, in particular here in the United States, don't even see themselves as American. We have a very anti-American kind of disposition. I, I don't think that that's right either. And many of us don't realize that we're American until we leave the United States, which is also mind-boggling. I had this experience myself. The first time I left the country, people just were like, you're American. And I'm like, what? And it was like the first time I ever felt American because I wasn't on the soil. So that those that cultural dynamic in itself is one of the first things to recognize and to have awareness about is how much race does play a role in our day to day. So if you are a black professional, keep that in mind that just because race is one of the first filters, it doesn't, it does it goes back to what Danielle was saying. It doesn't mean that you can't be strong-minded. It doesn't mean that your merit is anything less than what you've, you know, made it out to be. It doesn't mean you don't deserve the things that you've created or the work that you do. And you always have to push through that because that narrative around the, the narratives around race, I think, are one of the things that keep our stress levels high and keep our morale levels low. And it doesn't allow us to really you know, celebrate our victories when it comes to our professions and our career choices. Uh, So it's important for us to realize that I think the next thing that we can do is get informed, Um, whatever that may mean, whether that's in your industry, get informed, uh, whether that means just about historical trauma in general. Uh, A great book to start with is Dr. Joy DeGruy's book, um, post-traumatic slave syndrome. I think that's a great place to start for many people. Um, if you're not a reader, you can get it on audiobook. If you don't like books at all and audiobooks put you to sleep, there's tons of lectures and things, podcasts and things on YouTube of, of just her where you can learn from her. Uh, you can learn from folks like myself who talk about it as well. Uh, but just get informed with this concept of how slavery has impacted Black folks over time because it will help you connect a lot of dots to the things that we see uh, in today's society, in today's world. I think as a professional, another thing that we can do is you st- you have to get connected with other professionals and not just the black collectives. Those are important. So make sure if you don't have, you know, um, association of black psychologists or association of black lawyers, association, get connected to those types of groups because those are the groups that are going to uplift you and help you navigate through your professional spaces. But also join the non-race specific groups as well, because those are going to be the groups that help you do what we talked about earlier, build your networks. Both are going to help you build your networks, but don't just limit yourself to the ones that identify with your same racial group. You need to get into all those spaces as well. So go to conferences, go to, you know, uh, town hall meetings, go to these summits and things that happen and build those networks. because that's going to help you grow in your profession uh, and grow the things that you're trying to do. And then I think the last thing that I would suggest as kind of a tip is take care of yourself because this is not easy. This is this is not an easy conversation. You're probably one of the first people who've actually brought this kind of topic up for people to have a discourse about. It doesn't get talked about a lot because it does 
it, it does pull a few strings that people don't like to have pulled and it starts to reveal a lot of truths about what's dealt with in professional settings. So take care of yourself when you're engaging in these conversations. Uh, take care of yourself when you're in these workplaces to the best of your ability. And it's something I like to call sustainable wellness. How do you main, how do you say sustained in your workplace? It's, a, it's being more proactive with your self-care. A lot of us get taught self-care when something bad happens, then you take care of yourself. Then you do your yoga, then you do your breathing, then you take your extra steps on your Fitbit and all that good stuff. But how about we be a little bit more proactive because we know we're walking into environments that sometimes can be hostile or frustrating or stressful for us. Be proactive in your in maintaining your stress levels uh, and being proactive in maintaining your well-being so that you can keep doing the work that you love. Amazing. Thank you for these super practical tips. Um, I love it. And I hope that everyone is taking these to heart. Um, whether you are resonating with this topic, whether you feel like you are experiencing some effects of ancestral trauma or not, take these tips to heart because you're going to benefit either way. Um, this was such an amazing conversation for me to be able to invite you on this podcast after having found you yeah. and your presentation on Google. Mm -hmm. um, how can people connect with you, get in touch, learn more about perhaps working with you in ways or your organization? Sure. So I'll share two websites. Uh, first, my organizational website, Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health. That's a mouthful. We go by MACMA for short. You can find us at um, www.macmh.org. That's macmh.org. We have tons of resources for parents, caregivers, and young people around mental health. So if you have children or maybe you're a youth worker or um, maybe you just you might be a big brother, big sister, something of that nature. There may be some tools there and some information to share uh, with folks um, that are dealing with mental health issues around children. And then for me personally, um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn is the best place to connect with me. Just search Brandon Jones. You might even want to throw the word Jegna in there. That might help bring the algorithm to me. That's J-E-G-N-A, uh, which is also uh, my consulting organization. So you can find me at my website too. That's uh, jegna.org. That's www.jegna.org. Great. Amazing. Well, I'm going to put all these links in the chat for anyone who wants to go back and, and uh, reach out to Brandon, to his website or his LinkedIn. Now, if you've been listening and you feel like your career could really use an upgrade, whether you are feeling stuck at work, you are feeling like you're in the wrong industry, like you've made some choices in the past that were the choices that were there at the time, but right now it doesn't feel like the right path for you, I am here to support you. If you would like to learn more about career coaching with me, feel free to reach out. I'm going to drop the link to book a call in my calendar in the comments. I'm also going to put it in the show notes for the podcast so that if you are feeling like you could use some support and you're curious on how I could be that support for you, reach out. Let's chat. Zero pressure as always. And uh, we can see if this is the right next step for you. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge. Everyone who was listening along live, thank you for your amazing comments, for your engagement. And if you're listening on the podcast, thank you for tuning in again. Brandon, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right. I will talk to everyone here very, very soon.